Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's my privilege to introduce Professor Judith Simon to you today. Professor Simon is Professor of Health Economics and Head of the Department of Health Economics at the Center for Public Health at the Medical University of Vienna. Um, her background is most interesting because she um, has held several appointments at UK um, universities and other scientific institutions. She holds uh, a Doctor of Philosophy in Public Health from the University of Oxford, a Master of Science in Health Economics from the University of York, and several academic degrees, including a Doctor of Medicine from her uh, alma mater, I assume, which is the University of Szeged in uh, Hungary. Um, at the moment, she is, as I said, head of the department and inter alia also visiting professor of cognitive health economics at the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Oxford, other roles still active in Oxford, and also involved in the Ludwig Boltzmann Institute for Applied Diagnostics, where she is head of health economics. Professor Simon is therefore a most um, active and practically and academically speaking active uh, person. Uh, we have one thing in common, as I just learned um, before this um, starting uh, of the conversation today, is that she also uh, came to Vienna some years ago and was asked to build up a, compute, a completely new department, this department uh, that she is still running, uh, the Department of Health Economics from scratch. Um, and it will be very interesting, therefore, Thank you, uh, Professor Simon, for coming uh, to share your experiences on this. But let me, before asking you this, just explain why you are invited here mainly today. The main reason why you are inv invited here is that you and your department started to publish um, se on several aspects from a public health and a health economics point of view on the uh, ongoing COVID-19 crisis, in particular, and but not exclusive, exclusively, but in particular on uh, on uh, psychiatric and other uh, mental health issues that come uh, with COVID-19. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, first question, therefore, how is it to build up a department in Vienna and what are you doing as a department at the moment? Yes, firstly, thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here um, and uh, hopefully we will have an interesting one hour and uh, also, I would like to welcome the audience who are sitting somewhere in the background. Um, so um, coming to Vienna, um, I was in Oxford before. Uh, it's, uh, it happened to be a new country, a new language, a new institute. So these are already anyone who works in academia knows that these are gigantic changes uh, in life, in, in work experience. And um, I think uh, we already touched upon it that um, I was very much welcome and the medical university had a great support to establish this new line of research, health economics at the university. On the other hand, we know that Austria is not the fastest in administration and bureaucratic uh, issues. And uh, as we already touched upon, um, we experienced similar issues in, in the first uh, weeks or even months of starting in Vienna, that despite all the support, uh, having a computer or a printer even proved difficult at the first moment. But these are, I think, 
hurdles and challenges uh, one uh, happily oversees when you have the task to build up a new team, which I had. And um, I can say now after seven years that uh, it's a wonderful team of young researchers uh, and administrative personnel we have. We have about 12 um, faculty members and administrative uh, persons and uh, a few additional PhD students at the department. We do a lot of uh, work mainly focusing on economic evaluations. It's an, it's an area of health economics trying to support decision-making with evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, decision-making in terms of comparing different treatment options, which one is a better value, more cost-effective, uh, what should be the order of treatment pathway for different Uh, patients and uh, also trying to discuss resource allocation questions and providing expert information and data for this. So this is the profile of the uh, department. In terms of background, we are very mixed. Uh, you, You asked me to touch upon this as well. So we have people with economics background. Uh, I have some PhD students who have clinical uh, backgrounds. They are medical doctors, but we have mathematicians, public health people as well, social scientists, because health economics is in reality a social science. So mm-hmm. it's it's a subspecialty of economics. And um, yeah, so I think we, we are an independent institute and very much focusing on working with clinicians and decision makers about pro- producing health economic evidence. Are there any lawyers in your team? No, no, no lawyers. Okay. But we work very closely, which I know you will not, with ethicists. Uh, mm-hmm. Economics and ethics have a lot of uh, in common. And uh, as part of this collaboration, we very often tumble upon legal questions. So mm-hmm. um, I'm sure these are three approaches to the same question. Absolutely, absolutely. I saw that you were publishing with Alina Bix, for example, uh, who's yeah. a colleague very active in ethics. Uh, Actually, from a lawyer's perspective, there are some differences between ethics and law, but I'm very much aware of that for non-lawyers, uh, this is in a way the same field, right? So, uh, because it's normative. Uh, in a way. You know, I, I actually, why I mentioned, because we have, I mean, there are a lot of, it's fascinating, I think, when you work in these multidisciplinary teams to see that how the same question, how differently you can approach. And we actually uh, had quite a lot of discussions with Elena about mm-hmm. the same question before even writing the publications or, or designing the study yeah. and trying to find a common ground. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm I, sure I, legal, legal people would be the third angle to the same question. Absolutely. And it's very interesting. I mean, this is more a problem of my domain now. It's very interesting to see that the legal people are ra- often rather disconnected, both from the economical and from the ethical debates that are ongoing. And the legal layer is somewhere isolated coming at the very end and 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 not necessarily linking together everything in the best way possible and perhaps this is even something which we see in the ongoing COVID-19 situation now uh, without needing to go into any detail here already now but if you wish we could uh, because I think this is also happening at the moment right so the legal layer uh, which is the 
Covid-19-Maßnahmengesetz and all the other regulations is set in between the political debate and the, uh, the expert debate um, and the communication outside. And, and, and I'm, I'm wondering why this is. I'm not sure yet why this is. But from a legal point of view, it makes things rather difficult because you are always late um, and you are always the killjoy in a way or the troublemaker. Um, which is part of my day-to-day -day experience, but it's rather exhausting if you do it in every day, right? Yeah, it's it's a not proactive activity at the moment, but more yeah. retroactive. Yes, uh, and you you hear. I mean, I'm not an expert, and I I, I find this discussion also very interesting on my side that. Uh, what you learn from the media is that usually first something happens and then you have to adjust the legal background to it so that at the end it, it, it works on all sides. Yes. And I think this is exactly so, what you mentioned. Absolutely. The typical self-understanding of many lawyers is react to something which has already happened and bring it back into order and not proactively shaping the future, right? So it's, it's, it's a different domain. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, but in principle, I mean, is it is it a coincidence that lawyers are not part of your team, or is this true for the whole academic discipline uh, or 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 peer group in which you are in that lawyers do not really play a role in this? No, I think what what we are doing is um, collecting data and analyzing it, and this usually requires very strong quantitative skills, mm -hmm. and then providing the results uh, as evidence to decision making. And I think what happens then with this evidence then already is moved to the decision making level. And I think this is also where the legal impacts come into. So we kind of provide the information. Yeah. And, and then what happens to that information is, is not dependent on us. And I think this is why, why we are not directly working with, with lawyers. But mm -hmm. for example, I, I have to admit that in that sense that we uh, develop new tools, for example, questionnaires. Um, I'm also coordinating a big European project there as well. We have a lot of new tools coming out for economic evaluations. And when we are thinking now about commercialization and developing business plans and how to make this available for the public, mm -hmm. um, there uh, uh, we are involving, of course, uh, people who are experts in IP and also relevant law. And we work mm -hmm. with colleagues from the medical university in this respect. But, yeah. but this is more of a, again, next step. Yeah, and this is more for a law from a lawyer's point of view. This is more serving you in a way. It's exactly. a kind of helping exactly. you. It's, it's not... a service rather than yeah. creating together the the product. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the the first question is more also about the yeah. product because the policy making and the decision making on the uh, on the on on the decision level or on the political level yeah. obviously is is happening in a legal framework and somebody needs to translate yeah. this legal framework to the policy level, because otherwise, if this doesn't happen, and in some ways, it did not happen properly in some of the COVID-19 regulations that we saw, uh, if it doesn't happen, then at the end, the constitutional court or somebody else appears, or somebody like an academic like me appears saying, this will not fit, it will not work, it's not ready, uh, it's not ready, it's not well developed, and so on. And even at the beginning, when you were doing your empirical work, I would assume that already the questions that you ask are or can be biased in the way that they might have an impact on how to deal with this from a normative level. So also on that stage already, 
I think uh, um, it it might some way sometime uh, be useful to speak to lawyers, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, I actually will will take you on that that what you just said that it's very important how you ask the question, and I mm -hmm. think this is something what is very important for for us academic researchers in health economics that. Um, I've, when I when I, I arrived to Austria, I experienced that very often here people ask the question, could you do a study, could you do an analysis and show how much better A is than B? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I always say research does not answer a question how much better A is than B. Real objective research answers the question, how different is A from B? Mm -hmm. And maybe that A is better than B. It might be that they are equal or it might be that uh, A is worse than B. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I think this is a paradigm shift. I'm very happy to notice that it's, it's also changing mm -hmm. now, uh, that, that evidence is not anymore uh, required to support some hypothesis and interest, but rather to really answer questions. And I think COVID here tremendously changed the landscape. Okay, interesting, because my perception of the evidence as it was uh, introduced into the legal slash political debate in this COVID-19 crisis was clearly uh, dominated by assumptions about how the world should look like. So it was the opposite of how alternative A, B, C or D uh, might develop, it was clear, and it, it still is very clear in my view, that, uh, that there are some uh, targets that should be achieved, and then everything needs to be fit to that target, including the statistical evidence, and not the other way. But perhaps it's just, again, my lawyer's perception. Would you not agree on this? No, I would not agree. I, I okay. think a lot of the, the modeling that is going in the background is not supporting, you know, you have to come up with a certain number to support to support the political decision, but trying to preempt what will happening. But I, I think it's again, uh, maybe we are involved in different sections of the decision making. And I can see that this might be why we, we see this differently. Um, on the other hand, I have to agree with you that, um, and today I just had a journal club with my students and we discussed mm -hmm. this, that um, what is really the, the, what is the ultimate aim? Yeah, we, we have to define what we want to achieve in health economics. The ultimate aim is to uh, develop evidence which helps to create the most health from a given budget, yeah? Where you have some restrictions, some cost restrictions, and you have to look at which options will give you and produce at population level the most health. Um, therefore, I not necessarily, from a health economics viewpoint, if you conduct a relevant analysis, not everything that happened in Austria or in any other countries and decisions would fulfill this, um, this general health maximization uh, object. But as we know, politicians and governments not necessarily uh, just have to listen to evidence. And this is, this is what is happening. And maybe this is what you are referring to because we live in a society. There are human be uh, beings involved. There is a culture. There are different value sets. And, and I guess governments have to, uh, or 
take all of this into consideration when they are making their decisions? Uh, that, uh, there's a lot of very interesting in what you're saying. Uh, let me let me start with the following. Perhaps I should uh, I should clarify a little bit more what I meant before. So mm -hmm. my feeling from the very beginning, from March onwards and until today, is that there is, for example, a clear goal which is under no circumstances ICUs in this country may be overpopulated. So we need to do whatever it takes. Uh, whatever it takes to avoid a situation where uh, people uh, do not get an ICU bed if they need one, um, which is which is interesting because it's not not identical with your assumption that the maximum of health needs to be achieved, and it's also interesting because. I mean, there are other uh, implications of this uh, political goal, if it is a political goal, that are not health-related, that are also important, such as the economical situation of the whole country, the well-being of the children, um, I don't Social know, the situation, situation at the universities, job market, and so on, right? Yeah. And, and these also have health consequences. Yeah? Indeed, so absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Every, a yeah. lot of this is health related. Yeah. And, and I understand that in March, when all this started, everything was difficult because it was very new to everyone. Uh, but since March, there would have been plenty of time to, to debate in an academic environment and also in a political environment and also in a legal environment, whether those assumptions are the best ones to take. And in my view, it's not only a political question, it's also a legal question, it's a public health question, exactly. et cetera, et cetera. And my view, my view on the, or my perception of the situation in Austria at the moment is not really all these debates are, are in the public domain at the moment. If they, are, if, they are, if they are happening somewhere, I'm not really aware of them. Um, and that's what I meant by this, you know, by this preset of, of norms or values. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I, I think we, we in, in reality, in a normative world, yeah, we need a multidisciplinary team discussing and contrasting the different value uh, views and, and standards uh, in an open debate and trying to come up with, with, with the best solution. But what, I'm, uh, what I was trying to say is that uh, while I'm a very much an evidence-based person, we have to be, of course, aware that, that, that we live in a society. Yeah? And yeah. there are other values necessary as well as evidence. And um, I had very recently an interesting debate with, with my husband. We, we talked about, um, you know, how to prioritize people for vaccination. Uh, and, and is this the right approach or not? Some countries internationally decided to vaccinate younger um, people. And, and initially, some would say, why, why do we vaccinate, you know, the, the elderly, the, the very old, I'm talking here about 85, etc. But because uh, they already had a fair innings and things. And, and this, this is someone maybe superficially thinks, but then I did a quick back on the envelope calculation, looking at what is the average life expectancy at that age of still people who are already 85, etc. And what happens, and it turns out that, that it is actually right to to save these lives um uh, even in terms of value judgment and health and and um when you look at modelings uh, there are very good one in canada there they also 
looked at should we look at the direct benefit of vaccination, i.e. reducing severe consequences, where, of course, then the elderly and those with already pre-existing conditions should receive uh, first the jabs. This is what is happening in Austria as well, in addition to the, the critical um, infrastructure workers. Or should the more active, middle-aged, young generation who are actually the big spreaders of the of the virus get vaccinated and more focus in this indirect impact, because at some point with this indirect impact, you are maybe saving more lives also among the elderly. And this was simulated and they came up with, with an answer that uh, until we have a bigger proportion of the population either immunized or infected and already over the infection, actually the better approach is to start with the direct impact and, and immunize the elderly and, and all the other priority groups we are doing in Austria. So I think these are, again, you can discuss this at, at, a, at a more uh, so, social level, you know, and social values. And you can then also subject this to evidence base. And I myself was very surprised, you know, to, to find out when I read about this more that, that this is actually the, um, even the objective evidence supports something like this. Yeah, that's very interesting. Absolutely. I, uh, could you then perhaps give me a, a short uh, impression or share with me the impression whether you think that this transfer of the evidence-based knowledge into the political system and into the political decision-making in a crisis like this one that we are facing at yeah. the moment in Austria is organized in the best possible way or whether you would see some room for improvement there and if so where? Yeah. Um, I don't think I'm, I'm the best person to discuss uh, this in, in that sense that I'm not sure that I see and know all the angles of, of what's happening uh, in Austria. Uh, I can only give a personal opinion. There is definitely room for improvement. Uh, but if you look at internationally, I'm also involved in the uh, European Public Health School uh, COVID task force. And there we discuss this as many countries as different approaches to this. And it's very much influenced again by culture, by existing advisory bodies, whether there are these already in place and they can now be retasks to deal with COVID or they have to be newly set up. Um, who should be, how the members of this task force need to be selected. Um, definitely they should be multidisciplinary. Um, I, I, I would say that definitely there would be, I think, opportunity to have more transparent expertise brought in. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would be, I think, the prime minister of, uh, <laughs> of uh, this country if, if I would know the answer to this. And I think, again, it's very easy to criticize and not, but uh, not providing necessary better solutions. I don't think there is a one one bill fits every country solution to this. Mm -hmm. Okay, then perhaps a, a little bit more precisely asked in another way, are there any measures taken so far in Austria in where you, uh, I mean, from, from a regulatory point of view, such as lockdown, schools closed, uh, universities not mm -hmm. open, etc. Yeah. Any of those measures taken where you have the impression that the, uh, the evidence basis is unsufficiently developed or is everything in a way uh, at least uh, or did the transfer at least work in the way that everything can find the basis in the evidence if mm -hmm. needed 
Yeah. Uh, for this, I would need to in, be involved directly in the relevant committees, etc., to know what evidence is discussed mm -hmm. there. Yeah, in mm -hmm. order to answer this question. So I cannot answer this question. But I know that, for example, the Corona Ample system, there is a group of different expertise involved discussing um, uh, whether yeah, everyone necessarily sits around the table, I cannot tell you. And I don't know what the discussion is in these committees. Yeah. Yeah. And the traffic light system is gone. It's no longer. It's active, right? It was so, a wonderful yeah. thing in September, but we, are, yeah. we don't have any more regional. It's in red since uh, yeah. several months now. And it, it lost its, uh, for example, its, its meaning. Yeah. 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 yeah so but that... when it was set up, this was, I think, a great example trying to establish an expert committee behind it. Yeah. So as an initiative, I think this is a positive impact. Mm -hmm. Okay, I see. Okay, perhaps uh, if, if, if I may, Professor Simon, we could go a little bit more into detail about some of the research that you undertook yeah. personally in the field. Um, so one of the, the papers that I'm referring to deals explicitly with mental well-being, social connect, uh, connections, and existing vulnerability, vulnerabilities in Austrian population. And, and you did a survey on this. Um, perhaps that would be a good starting point, if you agree. And the other one is uh, the paper on uh, in this ASFER newsletter from November 2020 about the overall situation in Austria from a public health point of view, where you contributed quite a lot. Uh, that would also be interesting. Please choose which one to start with. The second one is probably the, the more general one. The first, the first one is the more specific one. So I don't know how you would like yeah. to take it as you prefer. But please give us an, a short impression about what's going on in this country from your point of view. Yeah, so maybe I, I will start with the mental health specific one as today's yeah. discussion. This was the topic and up until now we, we touched uh, quite, uh, not, I mean, it was more of an introduction yeah. discussion. So um, this study we, we conducted um, in, in that sense that I do a lot of research in mental health, in general mental health economics. And uh, very early on in the pandemic, it became clear that um, the pandemic doesn't just have uh, severe consequences in terms of infection and COVID, but it has tremendous mental health impact. And I think if we, long at, if we look at the longer term perspective, then this will continue at least for 10, 15% of the people currently impacted way beyond the end of the pandemic, which uh, hopefully we will see at, at some point. Uh, so this was, a, this was a research topic that was in any way very close to, to my expertise. Another research, what we do is outcomes research and to really try to see what are the best outcome measures to really capture the impact of COVID on, on mental health. And um, there is the capability approach, uh, which was developed by Amartya Sen, who is a Nobel Prize uh, holder. I don't know whether it says anything to the legal audience. It's basically an approach um, looking at saying that if you just try to measure outcomes in terms of functioning of a person, you don't get the right picture because a person who is starving because there is no food to eat versus a, a person who doesn't eat because of uh, fasting due to religious beliefs, 
uh, if you observe these two people, both of them are not eating. So at functioning level, they are the same. But if you know what is lying behind, what is the freedom of eating, then it's a completely two different scenarios. And this is what capabilities are trying to look at this freedom aspect. And this is another area where I'm, I'm doing quite a lot of research. And um, we, we felt that this should be looked at together with the mental health impacts in this study. So what, what we did, we surveyed using an online survey uh, over 550 uh, people back during the first lockdown, uh, asking about their mental health status, asking them about their social contacts and support, and asking about their well-being and capabilities, and uh, looking at the different characteristics of the people, how these influence the results, and they belonging to some vulnerability groups. By vulnerabilities, um, we mean uh, for example, people who have long-term physical illness and they are at high risk of severe COVID or people who had pre-existing mental health problems and therefore the disruption to healthcare services. And this is another angle, I think, going back to our previous discussion that why COVID completely dominates everything, the media, the healthcare services, it seems like that somewhere in the background, uh, the routine healthcare services are... are uh, were forgotten, mm. yeah, and and this is impacting tremendously people with with existing mental health problems. Um, so we looked at different vulnerabilities groups, and what we found that actually the mental well-being of this sample um, were thirty percent of the people had actually a low mental well-being during the first lockdown, and this even got worse during the second lockdown, where we repeated. Uh, a second wave of the questioning, comparing for a subgroup of people between the first wave and the second wave. And what we also found that while during the first lockdown, it was anxiety, which was causing a lot of the mental health issues. Mm -hmm. This seemed to be improved over time with the COVID pandemic and it's depression that is then becoming more dominating um, during the second lockdown and as we continue with, with the pandemic. And um, definitely it's uh, looking at all the different vulnerability groups, including critical workers, etc. People with previous mental health uh, treatment seem to be the most impacted. And one of the biggest decisive factors is the social support system around this. So I think yet another uh, emphasis that when you want to uh, improve health, it's not necessary healthcare interventions that you need to look at and in these public health decisions by governments and measures, but also the social angle and, and to make sure that people have sufficient social support systems around them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I find this number uh, really striking that 30% uh, of your participants reported low mental well-being already in the first wave. And I would expect as we are in the third now, uh, and perhaps a fourth or a fifth coming, uh, that the situation is uh, worse now and will probably become worse in, in, in the future. And uh, again, I would really be interested in the self-understanding of your discipline. Is in your self-understanding your discipline ending at this stage? So you are providing the evidence, which is the situation is bad and it's getting worse and worse. 
uh, and somebody else should translate this into a political measure or 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 a law or or is it still part of your discipline in your self-understanding to provide at least options that would be available now to deal with the situation such as i don't know help people in their personal environment, uh, increase the number of, uh, or, or increase low level entries to uh, psychological help, et cetera. So where, is, where does your discipline end? And, 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 and where does the political debate start? Mm -hmm. uh, I think the core of my discipline ends by providing the evidence. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it ends fully here, but I think to provide options and solutions to the problems, I would, I think, hugely overestimate my, my skills saying that I'm in a position to do this alone. Mm -hmm. And this would require joining together with lawyers, joining together with ethicists, joining together with clinicians, joining together with social care uh, and generally care uh, responsible people, joining together with managers, with politicians. And there you are already in a group who should then based on this evidence, debate this evidence yeah. and come up with a solution. I see our discipline necessary to be part of this discussion, but not as the sole uh, provider of the solution. I think this would be a huge okay i understand that I've, and i share that point um i would however like to ask you whether you have the feeling that anybody in this whole social system that, that is very complex in which we are in uh, that anybody of that realized those figures as being important i mean is there any yes. feedback on this yes. uh, and did you see any 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 measures taken as a reaction on this research uh, that you would like to emphasize um, so, uh, in terms of Austria, mm. uh, this research has been published, the Osfer report has been published, I had some recent discussions with the social insurances, uh, so, but, uh, and, and I'm not the only one who is researching this topic, yeah, there are other colleagues who are looking at suicide, etc. Definitely, it's gaining attention, whether anything has been done specifically on these results, I'm not aware as the impact, mm -hmm. but I can tell you that all of the international evidence that is emerging and where we are part of this, the WHO, the World Health Organization actually run a survey in 130 countries um, in uh, last year, mm -hmm. uh, over the summer, where they actually wanted to see the disruption in mental health services caused by COVID. And they found out that um, about close to 90% of these 130 had a major visible disruption and about 60 to 70% of the services were not accessible uh, during uh, COVID uh, in these countries. And many of the countries, about 80% of the high income, 50% of the low income countries implemented as part of the COVID um, response plan, some issues to tackle the mental health problems, but many of these countries, about 80% did not receive additional funding for this. Mm -hmm. So here we come to another problem. One thing is get your results out and noticed, get in discussion with the right people who are able to change something 
and then comes to it, it's very nice to have a plan, but usually these plans require funding and uh, where this funding comes from. Mm-hmm. So I think these are three layers of potential challenges to overcome. Yeah. And when it comes to the funding uh, and mental health related funding in Austria, would you be willing to compare the country with others? Are we, are we in the lead here or are we in average or below average? Uh, I think, actually, I think if I compare to, to many countries, we are not in a bad place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if, if I compare, for example, the availability of psychotherapy or psychoanalysis in Austria with the United Kingdom, where I'm also very aware of the situation, we are much better off mm-hmm. yeah, to, to provide uh, available treatment uh, mm-hmm. for the people. Uh, so I think in international comparison, we are not uh, so bad, but this doesn't mean that COVID is not impacting our people and our population in Austria. And we found out again in the same study, uh, and I don't want to read too much into these results, but for example, the people who had previous mental health treatment prior to COVID, only 30% of these actually had mental health services during the COVID time. I'm talking now about the first lockdown. So the initial kind of first few weeks. This potentially means up to 7% reduction in mental health service access. I'm not saying that this is the true number. Many of these people may didn't need mental health services, but definitely this is an indication of very similar findings like the WHO. Yeah, and that's also very interesting from another point of view, which is if you have these figures and if you have the Austrian legal political system, who would be then uh, the, the, the group or, or the person changing this i think it's very difficult in your layer system to target the 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 target on layer two and three because it's not just the health minister or it's not just the social security system or region a or b or the individual doctor treating the patient it's such a complex um, mixture of of institutions people responsibilities uh is is uh, is there anything uh important happening in the reorganization of this from 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 your point of view that should be highlighted or emphasized yeah i mean in in mental health and i think this might be very interesting for your department and area uh, actually a lot of telemedicine and e-health interventions have been implemented not just in austria Mm -hmm. internationally and uh, this is definitely better than 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 not being able to have access to services and i think this the speed of, of um, expanding this, this type of, of care has been never experienced before. And I think uh, in terms of data security and legal issues, this would have never happened if we wouldn't have had COVID. Um, this has positive impacts. It might be more flexible. It definitely provides a short-term solution while we have the pandemic ongoing. Uh, some treatment options, we have evidence that they work, for example, cognitive behavior therapy. This can work just as well online as, as in person. Um, so I think there are, if I have to say something as positive, this is a positive impact. But, and here comes the but, will this be kept up? And to what extent there is still among clinicians debate whether this should be seen as a positive change and some of it kept 
after the post-COVID, during the post-COVID uh, area, or we should return to, to traditional mental health care as we had prior to COVID. Mm. I think some uh, the, the, the real reality will be somewhere in between these two opinions, but uh, I think it will be fascinating to see what remains there from the digital um, new interventions and, yeah. and Vision. Yeah. I, I'm, I may say that, of course, from, from my discipline, this is a dream because there are so many wonderful legal questions in this and so many interesting issues from data protection to data security, exactly. to, uh, property questions, etc. Very interesting. But let me just emphasize one question here. I would assume that accessibility to e-health solutions in mental well-being uh, has a clear, uh, clear um social um, social implication, which is that only people who have the necessary income, who have the necessary education, et cetera, et cetera, have the room where they can uh, have an online session, et cetera, are, are, are able to make use of this, whereas people yeah. who are much more under pressure may yeah. not. So I would assume that this might be one more break in the wall of social separation in this country. Yeah, the inequalities will, will grow. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we see this not just with mental health, we see this with children, you know, I, I mean, yeah. uh, but I don't want this is a huge topic and I'm sure someone else will talk about this in, in this series <laughs> or already have talked yeah. about this. Uh, so, um, yes, you are absolutely right, but then here comes again, I think a lot that is happening in a healthcare system is actually influenced by how things are reimbursed, mm. how things are funded. Mm. Um, and this is a crucial point. So um, sometimes um, I have to move away from mental health for a, for a second mm. to explain what I mean. For example, there are simple operations that maybe someone is able to do as a day surgery. Someone goes, stays for a few hours, the surgery is done, and then uh, in the afternoon could go home. But if the reimbursement system works in a way that the hospital would only get this cost refunded if the patient is hospitalized for a night to stay in the hospital, mm -hmm. then of course, there is an incentive, a tremendous financial incentive to treat these patients as inpatient and keep them for a night. Uh, again, I think tremendous legal, social, ethical issues here. And I, I think the, the, so when you said who should make these decisions and who should be involved and what will happen, I think this cannot be a single decision of social insurances, a single decision of ministries, a single decisions of academics, mm -hmm. or I, I think we need all of these people around one, one table to discuss and try to preempt the consequences of these funding decisions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm -hmm. And again, the question is how to organize the forum in which this debate should then happen, because... Um, when I arrived to Austria, as again, I said, in, in the UK, this, this works very differently. And mm -hmm. I, I had a different professional experience. Um, there were some attempts um, for one of our projects where I hope to bring the different stakeholders around one table and have a joint project funded with all stakeholders involved and have transparency. I failed. I failed mm. to, to establish this so far. I haven't given up the, the aim. This is again, 
Um, I think you have to overcome here structural boundaries that is embedded in a long historical background and simple, the society needs time. But again, as much as COVID is, is a tremendous uh, impact, negative impact on all sides of our life, this might be, again, I would like to see that I see here positive developments when I compare to seven years ago, definitely in terms of interest in evidence, discussion about evidence. And I hope that the picture you painted where we can be involved more also in the solution side and not just the diagnosis side, then, then um, that, that this will come as well. Yeah, I, I hope so too. And I think this is one of the, I mean, of the ever in all the many of these conversations, one of the topics that always pop up, which is we need to work on the transformation of the of the evidence or of the empirical or of the of the of the academic uh, research outcomes into the uh, into the political system in a more efficient way than we did so far. And I think this is one of the things that will certainly remain after this crisis, if it should yeah. ever be over. Yeah. Uh, but it will again be very interesting to see then how this incentive system bringing people to voluntarily contribute to this will work. Because I, as you probably share with me as an impression, it's not really the first thing an academic is paid for, right? It's not, uh, yeah, and it's uh, not really the first thing our, our careers are built on. Um, yes, although again, I mean, if I compare to the UK there now, your, your academic work value is, is based not just on impact factor of publications, but on impact and impact, yeah. how it's defined is something completely different. And impact would mean contributing to new clinical guidelines, contributing to new uh, reimbursement systems, contributing to new pricing arrangements, etc. In my field, yeah, yeah. obviously, yeah. be something. And and hopefully this will come. Yeah, and at the same time, I'm I'm not too familiar with your field, but I would assume mm -hmm. if there is a if there's a vacancy somewhere and somebody is appearing with three high impact journal articles and the other person is coming with important debates with with local politicians on on the covid-19 crisis it's not necessarily the latter one who will get the job right <laughs> yeah but i think we, I, 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 again i've i'm not saying that you should have interesting discussions with politicians that's already yeah. very far from evidence i'm talking about i yeah. think you have to have the the capability or the ability to develop solid, robust, objective evidence, which is not there to support uh, certain right. interests. Yes. And then you have to have the ability to translate this evidence and discuss this and, and influence with this evidence the ongoing decision-making debates. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that that uh, position should be done where you have nice discussions without no, no. anything in the background. Yeah. Um, that's far from uh, from from the the point. But another point that I think maybe is also important here. Um, if you read this morning the 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 newspapers in Austria, there is now this discussion going on about the AstraZeneca um, mm -hmm. vaccine. I don't know whether you have seen that um, some. Um, information was spread about that it doesn't work for age groups 55, 65 uh, yeah. over, yeah? Um, 
And it turns out that um, this is shown in the media mm-hmm. as, you know, if I, I am a lay person, I read this, it doesn't work over 55, 65. I don't want to get the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's mm-hmm. already influencing the public's mind. Um, what turns out is the truth to be is that simply the clinical trials, which AstraZeneca conducted, had very few people in it, participants, who were over this age group. So it's not that it doesn't work. We simply have no evidence of effectiveness. And it's a very different thing from no evidence of effectiveness from evidence of no effectiveness. Of course. But until this is not shown to the public, this kind of information can be completely misinterpreted. And I think I also see our role, very important experts in whatever field we are, legal aspects or health economics, to make sure that evidence is correctly uh, provided to also to the greater public. Yes. So uh, this brings me back to uh, to the possibility to clarify again what I wanted to say before. Of course, by no means I wanted to make fun of uh, of your discipline by saying let's speak to somebody and try to influence mm-hmm. those people i just wanted to to emphasize that perhaps the incent the way how academics are incentivized in your discipline and in my discipline might not necessarily correspond with a system where such an expertise like the one that you are mentioning at the moment is urgently needed because if you give an interview today explaining that uh, the the vaccine is not not effective over 65, but it's just not clear whether it's effective or not because the group, the testing group was too small. This is time that you need to invest into communication to the public with your personal and academic background that you cannot invest in writing a high reputation paper. Exactly, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think we are on the same page. What I'm saying is that it's how your output as an academic is evaluated needs to change. And this is again a paradigm shift. This has already happened in the UK. There, it's not just the impact factor that is taken into consideration. Currently here in Austria and in many other countries, yeah, it's not, it's still the old, old style, let's say in this way. And, Mm -hmm. And obviously this is another hindrance towards that ideal we are talking here where academics and experts, I mean, Mm -hmm. not necessarily Mm -hmm. academics only, are involved and can be involved in in more decision-making debates. Mm -hmm. But but to this, again, maybe another point, which I think is generally very important is going back. You need robust, solid evidence. This requires time, this requires methodological knowledge, and this requires funding. Mm -hmm. Funding which makes sure that you can conduct relevant studies. My field or public health in general was nowhere on the agenda. Yeah, mm-hmm. we are spending from our healthcare uh, budget less than two percent on public health, and and this is the same with research funding. I don't know how is it in your field uh, or whether this is of of any concern, but until you are a basic scientist in in medical field, you you have fairly good access to to sources of funding until you are a more applied health services, public health researcher, uh, it's almost impossible to, to secure local national funding. Mm-hmm. And that's also true for European funds? Or is no, it, 
Not at all, not at all. And, and that's why it's not accidental that a lot of the work we do is via European funding. Yeah, that's the same is true for my discipline. It's very, when the, the, more, the more application near it's getting, the more it's European money, right? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and uh, an additional question to this, perhaps, would, would it be a good outcome then to receive more project-related project related basic funding from Austrian sources, or would it be necessary to change the whole system in the sense that non-project related basic work is also possible? Because that's one of the problems that I see in my field, right? It's always from project to project to project to project. And the, uh, the overall performance of the discipline as a whole uh, might uh, get into trouble because of this, you know, three-year, four-year, five-year cycles in which you are in. Mm. Um, I, yes, I, I mean, you need projects, whether we are talking about competitive grant-funded project or someone gets some money uh, to do a quick research on something. Um, I, I think it's, it would be better if priority research questions again would be decided together with, with involving the decision makers and what the system needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and if there would be then proper funding behind this, but this would be done on a competitive basis and not in terms of uh, who knows who or where a quick funding can be done for some, uh, some small questions with uh, questionable methodology, etc. Yeah. Okay, so there's another room of where, that we could enter about how, how research in this country is funded, uh, which is very interesting, but probably a little bit far away from the COVID-related uh, issues and of the stock yeah. and the mental health-related issues. Let me perhaps uh, close this very slowly by asking you one more general question, uh, if I may, about the other paper that we did not really stress too much now about this uh, spotlight on the Austin situation. I found it very interesting that I found a figure there about compliance with the, with the measures taken. Um, and uh, the, the outcome there was that uh, the compliance um, was quite okay in, in the first phase. Uh, and I mean, that's now my layperson's uh, translation of the figure. Uh, the question I would have now is whether you, you think that that has changed uh, and whether there is a relationship between the mental well-being part of your research and the compliance question. So are people with poor well-being less likely or more likely to comply with the rules? Yeah. So overall, about three quarter of the people reported that they are they were happy in the first lockdown with with complying the measures. This went down during the second lockdown. We again asked about the public health uh, measures and how they what is the perception of them and how they comply with it. So you are absolutely right. This went down, but again, for example, if you look at mask wearing during the first lockdown, people found this. Uh, less necessary than during the second lockdown. So this is again changing shifts. Um, what was the most, I think the two key public health measures I would like to mention in this respect. One is contact to family members and close relatives and friends. This is the one that people uh, complied with least 
and this remains this finding and they find the most critical. And here I again go back. It would be something that could be possibly very sensitively treated in future lockdowns. We see that in the in, in the current lockdown, there are some improvements already. Yeah, for example, you can visit people in, in elderly homes, etc., although restricted, but some some relaxation was here. And this could tremendously improve mental health, well-being as well. This is one of the measures that, that was very much impacting anxiety and, and isolation, feeling of isolation and generally a development of, of mental health conditions. Okay, so that's certainly a lesson to learn. I'm, I'm very grateful for this. Uh, Professor Simon, thank you so much. Is there anything you want to add? Any any last uh, important point before we close this session that you want to share with us? Or did we cover all the necessary points already? Uh, no, I think we, we covered everything. I think there is just one point maybe I would like to come back at the end that while COVID is very much an infectious disease with severe uh, consequences, hospitalization and death, there are other consequences of this, and we should not uh, shift the focus in our healthcare system only to one illness. And we have to make sure that uh, people who already had previous health issues, people who will have health issues, physical or mental health, as a consequence of COVID longer term, and also people who work in the system and are the key to run a healthcare system, their health is also taken uh, care of and and it's not forgotten in 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 this extremely difficult situation thank you indeed i completely agree with you thank you so much thank you for this one hour uh, thank you to our audience uh, please stay uh, with us stay informed and stay or become healthy as quickly as possible all the best to all of you. Have a good afternoon. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for having me. Bye.